Chapter 5 of Double Challenge by Jim Gelgard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Coon Valley Timmy whined uneasily, and Ted woke with a start. He glanced at the clock on the mantel and saw that it read twenty minutes past five. The last time he had looked, he remembered, the clock had said half past two. Obviously, he had fallen asleep in a chair, where he had been waiting for someone to come or something to happen. No one had come, but they were coming now. On the Lorton Road, Ted heard the cars that Tammy had detected twenty seconds earlier. He got to his feet and looked out into the thin, gray mistiness of early dawn. With its lights glowing like a ghost's eyes in the wan dimness, a car churned up the Harkness Drive, and a second followed it. The boy shrank away. Last night's events now seemed like some horrible nightmare. But the tread of steps outside and the knock on the door proved that they were not. Ted opened the door to confront Loring Blade and Corporal Paul Hostler of the State Police. He glanced beyond them at the men gathered beside the cars and saw that three of the nine were attired in state police uniforms. The six volunteer posse men were Tom and Bud Delbert, Smokey's brothers, Enos Alfred and Ernest Brill, his cousins, and Pete Toombs, who would go anywhere and do anything as long as it promised excitement and no monotonous labor. Loring Blade greeted Tom. Good morning, Ted. The boy muttered. Good morning. You seen your dad? Yes. I mean, since we took him away last night. Yes. Did he come back here? That's right. What time? Ted hesitated. He'd had his eyes fixed on the clock, but seconds and split seconds counted too. I don't know the exact time. Better tell the truth. Corporal Hostler warned bluntly. It can go hard for you if you don't. Where's your father now? I don't know. Maybe a couple of slaps will jar your memory. He took a step forward. Tammy, rippling in, placed himself in front of Ted. There was no growl in his throat or snarl on his lips, but his eyes were grim and his manner threatening. Hostler stopped. I don't think you'd better let him bite me. Loring Blade said quietly, Cut it out, Paul. There's enough trouble in this family without adding unnecessarily to it. Ted didn't do anything. He can tell us where his father is. I cannot, Ted flared. When did he leave here? Last night. What time? I forgot to hold a stopwatch on him. Why didn't you stop him? Don't you know that failing to do so can make you liable to arrest as an accessory after the fact? A sheriff and a game warden couldn't stop him. He's right, Loring Blade agreed. We couldn't. Why don't you start your men into the hills? If he left this house, Hostler threatened, we'll be on his track in two minutes. He turned and went out, and Ted laughed. Loring Blade swung to face him. 
You feel pretty bitter, don't you? How would you feel? Not too happy, the warden admitted. Why did you laugh? Ted grinned faintly. Does that trooper really think he or anyone else can track Dad? If he does have such ideas, Loring Blade conceded, he'll soon have some different ones. Nobody can track Al Harkness. Nor can they find him. Perhaps not immediately, but sooner or later they will. Yes? Ted questioned. Send a ten thousand men into the hills. Send a thousand into any big thicket. They wouldn't find him unless they happened to stumble right across him. Al can't stay in the hills forever. Maybe not, but he can stay there a long time. He knows every chipmunk den in the Mahala. He won't be easy to find, the warden conceded. But he will be found. What time did he come back last night? Just about an hour after you took him away. Loring Blade exclaimed, Wow! Ted looked quizzically at him, and the warden continued, We were on Dead Man's Curve, and he was between Jack and me, when suddenly he pushed the door open and just seemed to float out of it. We beat the brush around Dead Man's Curve until one o'clock this morning. About then I tumbled to the idea that he must have come back here. Why didn't you come last night? Loring Blade shrugged. He slipped through off fingers once. It wasn't hard to figure that he wouldn't have done that only to let himself be picked up again. Besides, it did seem sort of useless to hunt him all at night. He headed into the woods, and because he didn't make a sound that either Jack or I could hear, we thought he was holed up real close. Ted, do you think he shot Smokey? No. Why not? He said he didn't. Delbert said he did. Just what did he say? That's all. He regained consciousness briefly. The officer with him asked him who shot him, and he said Al did from ambush. I doubt if he's talked since. Do you believe Dad shot Smokey? The warden frowned. If he did, it wasn't from ambush. There's more to it than that. We could have brought it out, but it will be harder now. When Al ran, he made things look pretty bad. Not to me, but to a lot of other people. Do you think you can get him to come back and give himself up? I asked him last night to stay and face it out. Why wouldn't he? Dad's part of the Mahala, Ted said quietly. And the Mahela's code is the one he knows best. He would not go to jail for a crime he didn't commit, any more than a wild deer would voluntarily enter a cage. Doggone, that sure complicates things. Do you have any bright ideas? What did you find in Coon Valley? Just what I told you. Smokey's back trail and your dad's tobacco pouch. Nothing else. Smokey's rifle. We brought it in with us. No sign of anything else? Loring Blade answered wearily. You know what it's like there. Unless it's a trail like Smokey's and Smokey was bleeding hard, there's little in the way of sign that a human eye can detect.
Just the same, I think I'll go up there. What do you expect to find? I don't know. Anything would be a help. Guess it would be at that. Good luck. Are, are you going to join the hunt for Dad? Loring Blade grinned wryly. I'm not that optimistic. I agree with you that if Al wants to loose himself in the Mahala, he won't be found. But sooner or later, he'll show up. He can't spend the winter there. I wouldn't bet on that. Bet the way you please. But I'm not saying that you will. But if you should run across Al up in the hills, see if you can persuade him to give himself up. He still has a good case, in spite of Smokey's testimony. Too many people know Al too well to believe he'd shoot anybody from ambush. He has a lot of friends. The only ones who joined the posse were Delberts and Pete Toombs, and I sure hope none of them stumble across Al. If they come up in fighting, he's apt to fight right back. And one stove in Delbert around here is enough. Good luck again, Ted. Ted lost his belligerence. The warden was his father's friend. Stay and have, have breakfast with me. Thanks, but we breakfasted in Lorton before we came here. I'll be seeing you around. Do that. The warden left and Ted was alone, except for Tammy. He dropped a hand to the collie's silken head and tried to think a way out of the bewildering maze in which he was trapped. He was sure of two things. Al had not shot Smokey Delbert, and his father would stay in the hills until, as Loring Blade had said, winter forced him out. But it would have to be bitter, harsh winter. Al could make his way in anything else. Ted whispered, What are we going to do, Tammy? Tammy licked his fingers, and Ted furrowed his brow. The situation, as it existed, was almost pitifully vague. A man had been shot in Coon Valley, and the only signs left were the hurt man's trail and an accusing finger to point at who had hurt him. There had to be more than that, but what? Loring Blade had found nothing, and Loring was an expert woodsman. However, even though everything seemed hopeless, Somebody had better do something to help Al. And except for Loring Blade, Ted was the only one who wanted to help him. Even though it was a slim one, finding something that the game warden had not found seemed the only chance. Ted decided to take it. But we'll eat first, he promised Tammy. Ted prepared a hearty breakfast of bacon and eggs and fed Tammy. Then he fixed a lunch and, with Tammy beside him, got into Al's old pickup. He gulped, the way the seat had always seemed small enough when he and his father occupied it together. With Al gone, and despite the fact that Tammy sat beside him, the seat was huge. Ted gritted his teeth and started down the drive. He turned left on the Lorton Road slowed for the dangerous hairpin turn that was Dead Man's Curve, speeded up to climb a gentle rise, descended back into the valley, and turned again on the Fordham Road. A well-graded 
and not at all a dangerous highway, somehow the Fordham Road had never seemed a place for cars. It was as though it had been always there, a part of the Mahala, and had never been torn out of the beech forest with gargantuan bulldozers or ripped with blasting powder. For the most part, it was used by the trucks of a small logging outfit, which, under state supervision, was cutting surplus timber, and by hunters who wanted to drive their cars as close as possible to remote hunting country. Ted slowed up for five deer that drifted across the road in front of him, and stopped for a fawn that stood with braced legs and wide eyes and regarded the truck in amazement. Only when Ted tooted the horn did the fawn come alive, scramble up an embankment, and disappear. The boy smiled wearily. Had Al been with him, both would have enjoyed the startled fawn, and they would have talked about it. An hour after leaving his house, Ted came to the mouth of Coon Valley. Long and shallow, the upper parts of both slopes were covered with beech forest. But if any trees had ever found a rooting in the floor of the valley, or for about seventy yards up either side, they had died or been cut so long ago that even the stumps had disappeared. The usual little stream trickled down the valley. Ted pulled over to the side and stopped. He got out and put the truck's key in his pocket. Tammy jumped to the ground beside him. The big collie bristled and walked warily around a dark stain in the road. Ted fought a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. There was no doubt that some hurt thing had lain there, but unless someone had told him so, he never would have known that it was a man. Ted licked his lips, and Tammy stayed close beside him as they started up the valley. Smokey Delbert's journey had indeed been a terrible one. Had he not been hardened by a lifetime of outdoor living, probably he never could have made it. In a way, Ted supposed, it was Smokey's atonement for the many vicious practices. Yet the boy found it in his heart to admit that whoever had shot the poacher and forced him to crawl, wounded and bleeding, to the Fordham Road was even more vicious. Ted stirred uneasily, and then calmed himself. Al had said it was no part of his doing, therefore it was not. Who had done this dreadful thing? A spring trickling across the valley had left a soft spot. Here Ted stopped instantly. Very plain in the soft earth were the tracks of a single, unshod horse that had walked down Coon Valley and back up it, or up it and back down. Ted could not be sure, but his heart leaped. Loring Blade and Jack Callahan had said nothing about any horses. Who had taken a horse up the valley? And why? His interest quickening, Ted looked for more horse tracks. He found them farther on, where the trail became a stretch of sand from the little stream's overflow. But he still could not determine whether the horse had gone up or down the valley first. He knew definitely, only that it had traveled both ways, and if he could find out why, he might also find a clue as to who had shot Smokey Delbert. Ted kept downcast eyes on the trail. Save for that unmistakable sign left by Smokey Delbert 
and an occasional path or little trail which anything at all might have used. For a long ways, he found only scattered indications of the Coon Valley was traveled at all. The lush grass, beginning to wither because of lack of rain, formed its own hard cushion. An Indian or a bushman tracker might have been able to read the story of what had come this way, but Ted could find little. Trotting a little ways ahead, Tammy stopped suddenly, pricked up his ears and looked interestedly at a small clearing that reached perhaps 300 yards into the beech woods. Following his gaze, Ted saw two brown horses and a black one. Their heads were up and ears pricked forward as they studied the two on the trail. Ted sighed in resignation. The Crawfords and the Stacys, who lived in the Mahala, each kept several horses. Why they did, why they kept any at all, only they could explain, for neither had enough land to warrant even keeping one horse. Still, they had them. The horses were usually left to forage for themselves for the first time the spring grass appeared, and until hunting season opened. Then, sometimes, they were pressed into service to pack or pull the tents or gear of the hunters who had a yen for some remote spot, or to pack out deer or bears that had been brought down a long ways from any road. At any rate, the horse tracks were explained. While it wasn't usual for one horse to break from his companions, to go wandering, now and again one would do it. The black horse broke from the two browns, trotted down to Ted, arched his neck and extended a friendly muzzle. Ted petted him. Lonesome for a human being, fella. Ted went on, and the black horse followed him a little ways, before it turned back to join the other two. A half mile from the Fordham Road, Ted came to the three sycamores near Glory Rock. The sides of Coon Valley pitched sharply upwards here, and the beech forest came closer to the valley's floor. The three sycamores, a giant tree and two near giants, rustled their leaves in the little breeze and remained aloof from everything else, as though they were the royalty in this place. Even Glory Rock, an elephant-backed, elephant-sized boulder, whose ancient face wore a stubble of lichens, seemed demure in their presence. To the left, a raggle-taggle thicket of beech brush scrawled to within twenty feet of the valley's floor. Ted looked down at the place where Smoky Delbert had fallen, and there could be no mistaking it. The boy stood still, searching everything near the spot, and as he did, hope faded. The bullet, Loring Blade had said, had gone clear through Smoky. That within itself was unusual. With no exceptions of which Ted knew, everybody who came into the Mahala used soft-point hunting bullets that mushroomed on impact. But now and again, though very rarely, a faulty bullet didn't expand when it struck. Probably that was another factor that had saved Smokey's life. A mushrooming bullet did awful damage. In spite of the fact that some of it might escape the hunter, Probably at least 80% of anything hit with one died sooner or later. Smokey, Ted's experience told him, never would have moved from beside the sycamores if this bullet had mushroomed. Ted furrowed his brows. The bullet might prove a lot, but finding it was as hopeless as locating a pebble in an ocean. There was nothing except the sycamores and grass right here, 
and none of the sycamore trunks were bullet-marked. Going through Smoky without expanding, the bullet had nicked into the ground the same way. Locating it might mean shifting tons and perhaps dozens of tons of earth. Even then, unless one were lucky, the bullet might elude him. Tammy, who was sitting beside Ted and staring into the beached brush, whined suddenly. In turn, he lifted both white front paws and put them down again. He drank deeply of some scent that only he could detect. Ted looked keenly at him. What do you got, Tammy? Tammy ran a little ways toward the beach brush and turned to look back over his shoulder. Ted frowned. Loring Blade had reported correctly and in full everything that could be found in the valley, but Loring hadn't had a dog with him. Obviously, Tammy's nose had discovered something that any human being might well miss. Ted ordered, Go ahead, Tammy. The dog started up slope toward the brush, and Ted followed. He ducked into the thicket, so dense that, once within it, visibility was limited to twenty feet or less, and there were places where he had to crawl. In the center of the thicket, Tammy halted to look down, and Ted came up beside him. In the center of the beech brush was a well-marked trail used by deer that knew perfectly well the advantages of staying in the thicket. Tammy was looking down at a splash of drying blood. Obviously, a deer had been badly wounded here and had fallen. Ted heaped lavish praise on his dog. Good boy, good boy, Tammy. He set his jaw and his eyes glinted. Unless a hunter were within 20 feet of the trail, in which case it was highly improbable that any deer would have come down it, nobody within the beech brush could have wounded the deer. But how about the opposite slope? Ted retraced his steps and climbed to the top of Glory Rock. From that vantage point, where he could look across it instead of trying to look through it, the beech thicket became more open. He couldn't see everything, but he could see very plainly the place where the deer had fallen. Moving to one side, Ted had the same view. The deer could have been shot from any of a dozen places on this slope. What had taken place assumed definite shape in Ted's mind. Smoky Delbert, always the poacher, had known of the beech thicket and the trail through it. He had waited for a deer and shot one when it appeared. Somebody else, somebody who knew and took violent exception to Smoky and his antics, and there were at least thirty men who did, had either happened along or had witnessed the whole thing. Probably, there had been an argument, followed by the shooting. No nearer a solution than he had been before, Ted nibbled his lip in frustration. He knew now why Smokey had been shot, but he still hadn't the faintest idea as to who had shot him. All he had were widely scattered pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, with too many pieces missing. However, first things came first, and he'd better get the hurt deer, for it was both practical and merciful to do so. Badly wounded, it couldn't possibly travel far. If he found it still alive, the least he could do was put it out of its misery. If it was dead, he should save what he could be salvaged of the venison. Al would have done the same had he been there. Ted said, Come on, Tammy. 
They returned to the place where the deer had fallen and took up the trail. It was easy to follow, for the animal had been badly hurt. Straight down the trail it had run, and sixty yards farther on, Ted found where it had fallen again and thrashed about. The beech brush blended back into the beech forest, and the trail Ted followed swerved to within twenty feet of the valley floor. He found a great puddle of blood where the deer had fallen a third time. He marveled. The deer had been down three times in a little more than three hundred yards, and it never should have been able to get back up and go on. But it had gone on, and it had also nearly stopped bleeding. From this point, there was only a spot here and there to mark the leaves. Ted shook his head. If he wasn't seeing this himself, he wouldn't have believed it. He remembered that a deer is an incredibly tough thing. It can still run after receiving wounds that would stop a man in his tracks. Overrunning the trail, the boy had to stop and circle until he picked it up again. It was necessary to do this so many times that, by mid-afternoon, he was scarcely a mile from the three sycamores. A half hour later, he lost the trail completely. The deer had stopped bleeding. Ted made a wide circle in an effort to find the trail again. And when he failed, he made a wider circle. He stopped to think. He'd have sworn, knowing how hard the deer was hit, that it would never run for 500 yards. Obviously, he had guessed wrong. And what now? Anything he did would be little better than a shot in the dark. But if he could help it, he would not leave an injured beast to a lingering terrible death. Wounded wild things are apt to seek a haven in thickets. Perhaps if he cast back and forth through brush tangles, Tammy would scent the deer again. Ted made his way to a grove of scrub hemlock, cut from there to a laurel thicket, and pushed and crawled his way through half of a dozen snarls of beech brush. He knew that he was not going to find the wounded deer, and he sorrowed for the suffering animal. About to drop his hand to Tammy's head, he found that the collie was no longer beside him. He was about twenty feet back, dancing excitedly in the trail. His ears were alert, his eyes happy, and there was a doggy smile on his jaws. He had a scent, but it was not the scent of a wounded deer. Ted took his handkerchief from his pocket and gave it to the dog. Take it to Al, he ordered quietly. Take it to Al, Tammy. Carrying the handkerchief, Tammy streaked into the forest and disappeared. Ted walked down Coon Valley and waited at the truck. An hour and a quarter later, no longer carrying the handkerchief, Tammy joined him. Ted petted him and looked soberly into the forest. He didn't know where Al was hiding, and he didn't want to know. But Tammy knew. End of chapter 5